Welcome to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with my co-host, Tom Jokic, who also created this monstrosity that we love so much. (laughs) (laughs) We got a great show today, Tom. We sure do. That was kind of backhanded, buddy, but I I give you credit for that. Well played. Um, (laughs) So in the past 90 or so episodes that we've put together... We've done a couple of episodes where we have featured Phil Collins and Peter Gabriel. Um, Phil Collins was specifically featured in episode 214, and Peter Gabriel is in episode 201. Both of them are very, very good interviews. I got to tell you, Christopher, I think this Peter Gabriel interview is the best of the bunch. He is so candid. He is so thoughtful he is deliberate so you know you got to kind Mm -hmm. of relax into the interview you can't be in a hurry listening to it but he is terrific and he explains so much about his artistry his music his love of videos around the time when a lot of bands were deciding to shy away from videos he was jumping full in tom is this around the time of the amnesty international human rights now tour This is 1986, and the Amnesty Tour that you're talking about was 1988. But he was in, fully engaged with Amnesty International, and he had done some shows. And I think they were either all in the U.S. or all in the U.K. It was not that Human Rights Now tour yet. So this interview is from 1986, right around the time when the album So came out, and Mm -hmm. then the Human Rights Tour with... We need to talk about that that show because you know Katie Lang was great. I think I think Tracy Chapman was on that show, and then uh, Yusur Nadur is amazing. A whole bunch of uh, you know one or two other artists. Sting comes out. Sting's amazing. I'm going, wow. How can anybody top Sting? And then Peter Gabriel comes out. Peter Gabriel's stunning. I'm going seriously. Nobody can top that. Springsteen comes out, <laughs> plays Born in the USA. One of the greatest anti-war songs ever written, so it's perfectly placed in this human rights celebration. And he blows everybody away in his, you know, abbreviated show, because it's it's a fairly long concert with everybody involved, but everybody's got to shorten their sets to make it a reasonable length. He is incredible. He blew the doors off of everyone, and it was maybe the second time I'd seen him, and he just reminded me why he is by far the greatest live performer that I've ever seen anyway. Yeah. Okay, Tom, that's not all we have this week. No, indeed. We have an amazing, tight, and very funky 1979 interview with Bernard Edwards, the bassist and co-founder of Chic. Bernard is a much underrated player in music history, and this chat with him is a real gem. He talks about that group, how showing off their incredible chops was not allowed to interfere with the music, and his prediction about the fate of disco. Plus, several months ago, in episode 410, we told you about the terrible health issues Greg Keeler of Blue Rodeo was having with his hearing. It actually threatened his career. Well, Greg is back, and not only is he able to perform again, he has a new album out. And although this album was born out of trauma and pain, our chat is actually a very joyful one. Now, let's get started with Peter Gabriel. 1986, that's Peter Gabriel from the album So with Sledgehammer. One of the most dominant artists of the 70s, 80s, and early 90s, Peter Gabriel became known for his adventurous music, highly creative videos, and increasingly for his humanitarian work. Along the way, he sold millions of records, as did his former band Genesis, by the way. He was recognized with many awards, including being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame twice as a member of Genesis and as a solo artist. This Mm. interview is extremely wide-ranging and truly fascinating. If you're a Gabriel fan, you're going to hang on every word of this one, because he takes the time to answer all the questions with that trademark low-key sense of detail of his. Yeah, Christopher, I just want to acknowledge the interviewer. Her name is Terry Michael, who we just lost tragically three years ago. Terry was a wonderful person who I worked with for only a short time in 1986. And it's funny, but she let me tag along to this interview. And I was the guy holding the mic between Terry and Peter. Oh, really? Terry asked a question. I have the mic held up to her mouth. I move the mic over to Peter (laughs) as he answers. And actually, there are times when you can actually hear the mic I did a lousy job. You can hear the mic going from one person to the other. And that's all you had to do is move the mic and, uh, 
Well, well I know. <laughs> <laughs> and this was like, I was really, this is really early in my career, but it was a lot of fun. It was really great to be there with Terry, and it was wonderful to meet Peter Gabriel. The interview took place on the release of the album So, which was produced by Daniel Lanois. This is the album that would become his most successful in sales with five million copies. He talks about his work with Amnesty International. You've dedicated a lot of your time and your music uh, promoting Amnesty International and uh, certainly South Africa's apartheid policy. Um, do you really think that your efforts will help these causes, and if so, to what extent? Well, the Amnesty Tour set out uh, to get 25,000 new postcard writers because part of the way that they are really effective is through the simple weapon of postcards. Uh, I think they have over 60,000 new letter writers and the way it works is when you sign on you get given three uh, prisoners to, if you like to sponsor um, and one is in a left-wing country one is in a right-wing country and one is in a third world country and I think it's important to stress that that amnesty is very impartial in that way and then as the postcards start arriving uh, it's uh, it appeals to the basic human urge not to get bad press that uh, uh, these jailers and governors will will start uh, worrying about the world attention on this particular prisoner and very often at least in 50 percent of the cases uh, they will be torture will be stopped and, uh, and in some cases the prisoners will be released and on the tour we would meet after the concerts some people I mean one man I remember distinctly and he spent six years in a jail in South Africa uh, and he came up at the end of the concert with tears in his eyes and, and when you see that and you see a real uh, the cost in human terms of, of the uh, terrible outrages and human rights and, and the effectiveness of amnesty it makes the whole thing really worthwhile and just to comment on all this uh, compassion fatigue and aid burnout is that I'd much rather be in a society where there was too much uh, too many benefits than in a society that didn't give a damn. Are you perhaps, Peter, not concerned, though, that this could become very time-consuming? There will certainly always be another um, social cause to work on and someone else that wants your time. Are you not worried about that uh, perhaps taking up too much of your personal time? Uh, it does take up time, but then, I mean, in a sense, um, I think when you give, you get, and... Uh, I mean, I found I was supposed to be doing a Japanese promotional tour when these amnesty dates were first proposed, and uh, and I wasn't sure if I should do that, and I was nervous about playing with a band on three days rehearsal that wasn't my usual band. Um, but uh, it so wor worked out that when I decided to go for it and to let go of these other things, which might have been good for my career, you know, I ended up in America at a time when the album took off, and so you know, it was useful to be around and to be visible. And so I think, uh, I mean, really by by chance, it, it uh, worked to my advantage. So, uh, and I think that happens for a lot of musicians, you know, that uh, um, when you, you do decide to, to do something for someone that's other than yourself, uh, even if it's in just your own conscience, I think, you, you get benefits. Oh, I love that ending. Peter Gabriel, in a way, talking about the good karma that comes from helping others. Peter has remained active in those causes over the years. In 2008, more than 20 years after he first started working with Amnesty International, he was given a special award by that organization. You know, I interviewed him after one of the Amnesty tours um, as well, Tom, and he contrasted the humanitarian work that he and his cohorts were doing with the idealism of the 60s. And he was actually kind of cynical about the 60s. He said, well, you know, they had all these great ideas, but nothing ever really got done. Mm, wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In other words, no actual, no money was raised, you know. Right. But that's interesting because perhaps it's possible that it wouldn't have occurred to them to, you know, kind of a hippie ideal to actually raise money. To try to monetize something, yeah. Yeah, but you could argue that those baby boomer aspirations that were hatched in the 60s came to fruition in the mid-80s with Live Aid, um, Band Aid, Amnesty International, Human Rights Rock Concerts, and that flourishing 
of charitable causes and 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 concerts like uh, also Farm Aid, you know? You know, I think you make a really good point because arguably those things that you mentioned could not have happened without, say, the concert for Bangladesh uh, beforehand, which was admittedly right. troubled financially, you know? Yeah. Here, Gabriel responds to the suggestion that the album So is a more consciously commercial work. I've had some flack and, you know, I'm expecting more, you know, as the album gets more successful that, that I... I'd be accused of just going out for commercialism on this record. Uh, it upsets me a lot. I was working on the uh, Birdie soundtrack, and the, I think that, that my work, if you like, can be divided into songwriting and into instrumental work and experiment. Um, and I had that part of me fully satisfied with this soundtrack of Birdie, which which was really I mean, it's as important a record to me as uh, the So album, although I know that that's not going to appeal to the same number of people. But having finished that um, and explored those areas, I wanted to do something which was quite different, and uh, the reaction was to go for songs with some more traditional elements. And that, I think, has made it more accessible, plus the fact that I think that there are better performances uh, captured uh, of my work as a, as a singer which has opened it up what frustrates me about those criticisms is that that i've been uh, working for 12 years now since leaving genesis or deciding to leave genesis uh, in building a, a career and a style of music that i wasn't compromising that i was doing exactly what i wanted to uh, and I'm not about to throw that all away just to get a hit single. There's an example of the more pop sound of Peter Gabriel from the mid-80s, big time from 1986. You know, even when he was doing pop, though, it was far more interesting than many of the other pop stars of the day who were ruling the charts at that time. Yeah, he always broke the barriers, and wonderfully so. Still much more to come with Peter Gabriel, including the painstaking and painful work that went into the making of the video for Sledgehammer. If you're a fan of other groundbreaking artists, check out our episodes with David Bowie, Bob Dylan, Buffy St. Marie, Beyonce, Rush, Springsteen, and many more. Subscribe to Famous Lost Words on the iHeartRadio app or any other podcast service. Welcome back to Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward, and we're in the middle of an awesome 1986 interview with Peter Gabriel. Just want to point out that you're about to experience deja vu with the part about Peter Gabriel leaving Genesis, because we played a part of that interview a couple of weeks ago in our episode about band breakups. But this time around, we're playing his full answer, which includes jealousy within the band. So lots of drama there. Stand by for that. Okay, Christopher, you and I agree that Peter Gabriel made some of the best videos of his era. And that's where we are now. Tom, this is a moment from my personal memory bank. The making of the famous Sledgehammer video was even more arduous than you might have imagined. Being animated, it's very, very slow process. Uh, even to get a 10-second segment can take uh, between four to six hours, I mean, uh, in which I have to s- stay in effectively the same position for that long, which becomes very painful after a while. But certain things like there are clouds which are moving across my face and they were, they were actually painted across my face um, with house paint because the, the makeup wouldn't... Uh, so that, that too becomes quite an, an ordeal. But uh, I think in the end, we all uh, felt like a team. And the great thing about animation is that because it happens so slowly, you can improvise. And if you think of something 30 minutes into a six-hour shoot, then you've got time to add this, that, and the other to it and have it still come in, appear, do its thing, and disappear. Sledgehammer, Peter Gabriel, 1986, one of the weirdest and best videos ever made. And right there, Peter Gabriel tells you the immense amount of work that went into it. Well, Tom, here, 
Peter Gabriel talks about what video meant to him. There are a couple of American groups, um, Van Halen and Journey, to name two, that have recently made decisions not to release videos to support their current singles. Um, now, obviously, video is important to you. Could this perhaps be the beginning of a new trend? Do you think we might see the video boom uh, um, go through some sort of falling out process right now? Well, you may get a division between people who get turned on by visual things and love to work with them uh, and those who resent having to, uh, to do videos. I mean, I... I feel strongly that no musician should be forced into making a video if he doesn't want to. Uh, but for me, it's like a duck to water. I, you know, I'm in the, my playground, really, and I can conceive of things and then bring them to the screen, and, uh, and that's very satisfying. Uh, and, and I choose also to work with very creative people uh, from whom I will learn. That's Peter Gabriel, Games Without Frontiers from 1980 and that third solo album. The first three were called Peter Gabriel, which caused a tremendous amount of confusion. That <laughs> song, by the way, was probably the very first truly weird pop song that I really loved. I don't know. I can't think of a weirder one that came earlier. Um, I was going to ask you if you can, but I'm sure you're going to say Surfing Bird. <laughs> Well, that or the Martian hop. I, I, it's, it's a tough oh. call, you know. <laughs> oh, dear. 1963, the Randells with the Martian hop. <laughs> <laughs> Tom, Peter is asked once again about why he left Genesis. And, you know, this time there may be some surprises in his answer. In the eyes of the public, uh, you spent almost nine years as the front man and leader Genesis, and I guess just when things looked like they were starting to happen for the band, you made the decision to leave, and it certainly surprised some people. And I wondered if, even after all these years, if you would maybe just take a second or two to tell us why you left. And this is a question which I won't surprise you in saying that I have been asked before. Um, I think there were a number of reasons. Inside the band, uh, things were getting a little harder. Um, in terms of composition, I think we all were learning how to do different things and wanted to stretch our muscles. For instance, keyboard playing. Um, I was learning to, well, I was getting proficient at some keyboard. Phil was beginning to play keyboards. Uh, and yet, uh, uh, Tony Banks, because that was his thing, really was quite possessive. Um, I mean, that's just an example. There were many little things like that, which are quite normal everyday events for band members. Uh, and uh, I think there would be a certain amount of feeling that the time I was with the band, that I was credited with writing virtually everything, which was very unfair to the others. The time I left the band, and the band sounded very similar, um, the whole thing reversed, and I was credited with uh, having written uh, none of it. So I guess it's... Um, swings and, and roundabouts there. Uh, so that, that was a frustration. And then I had an offer from um, William Freakin, the director of Exorcist fame and French Connection, that uh, he was trying to pull together a team of young people that had never been involved with film before. And he wanted me not for my music, but for my imagination um, on a project which never happened. But... Uh, at the time was quite important to me and the band weren't prepared to make allowances in schedules. Uh, that was a frustration. And I think on a personal level, uh, we just had our first child and it seemed uh, it was a very difficult birth and it didn't seem she was gonna live for the first week. Um, now she's fine, very healthy, but that was far more important to me than making a Genesis record, which we were in the middle of. Uh, and the band at that time, not being parents themselves, were very unsympathetic in a way. So I think, I think that had the effect of creating some bad feeling. And uh, finally, um, and then I'll stop, uh, I didn't like what I was becoming in, uh, in a sort of successful rock and roll band that it seemed uh, that, that I saw things within myself. That, 
seemed to be uh, pushing me towards the uh, formula rock and roll entertainer, and I just wanted to get out of the business. Again, if that clip sounds familiar, we played a portion of it in episode 606 a couple of weeks ago when we focused on famous band breakups. Check out that episode featuring Roger Hodgson versus Supertramp, Dennis DeYoung versus Styx, Peter Cetera versus Chicago, Steve Perry versus Journey, and even Sonny versus Cher. Anyway, back to Peter Gabriel who just gave a thoughtful answer to a question that he's been asked probably a thousand times before. He has, but boy, the end of that answer sort of quietly sneaks up on you. It goes dark, some of his reasons. Yeah, absolutely. Genesis, of course, continued with even greater success, but Peter wasn't surprised. After you did leave the band, it was uh, certainly assumed through that time that you were the band and that everyone else kind of just backed you up and that was really about it and no one really expected the band to be able to pick up and recover after you left but recover they did um, were you perhaps a little taken aback at uh, the fact that they were able to get on their feet and in fact do quite well absolutely not uh, Genesis was a songwriters collective and I think that's the distinction I mean and that is the reason now that the charts are sort of littered with Genesis next Genesis people in the same way that perhaps 10CC were also a songwriters collective uh, and and I think it is in the end it's the material that determines the appeal um, so if you have collaborators that that are are writers rather than players and, and there is a distinction you know in emphasis uh, then you can sort of subdivide and still have some success there were some critics that thought one of the reasons that Genesis might have been so readily accepted without you was the fact that some folks thought Pete, uh, that uh, some folks thought Phil Collins sounded very much like you um, when he handled vocals. Do you really think you sound alike? Could that have been part of the reason why was he really able to step into your shoes uh, that easily with his vocal style? Do you think? Uh, I think the two factors have worked there. One is that Phil had been singing already some of the background vocals and therefore maybe what had been assumed as mine was uh, in part his. Um, and uh, the other side of that is that if you're listening to someone singing songs for 10 years and then you're asked to sing them, you're bound to pick up a few licks from the way you've been hearing them all the time. Um, I think now uh, the, the singing styles are quite separate, but um, I think that those are the main reasons for the, for the overlap. I got to admit, Christopher, I was impressed by the fact that despite the split within Genesis, both Peter Gabriel and Phil Collins worked together on a number of occasions, including Peter's third solo album and on Phil's third solo album as well. And as we've discussed before, Peter did reunite with the guys from Genesis in 1982 for a one-off to help him raise money for his WOMAD festival, which was in dire financial straits. In fact, he faced financial ruin because of that, and some say he faced threats, like death threats, to you know, threats to his personal safety. It was a scary time for Peter, and his buddies in Genesis came to the rescue for that event. I love that mm. story. That is a great story. Mm -hmm. Here, Gabriel talks about what makes a great stage show. Artists such as yourself and people like David Bowie have, uh, from years ago, uh, understood the importance of stage presentation and stage persona um, and putting on a show that was as visually exciting for an audience um, as it might have been to hear you do your material live. Um, what do you think it takes today in the 80s? Because certainly this kind of thing is been done now for years and uh, uh, artists have gone to great lengths and great money to be able to put on wildly fantastic stage shows for audiences and I think they've become a bit jaded now with time. What do you think it takes now in the 80s to re-excite an audience or to hold an audience? What, what elements must there be in a show do you think to keep them interested? I think what people are striving for is passion because it's depth of feeling that ultimately determines the potency of that relationship and uh, I don't like the arms war as I call it you know this thing that you just push thousands of dollars into having the biggest light show or the the biggest laser uh, spectacular and I'm not saying that 
I don't like visual things because, I mean, for instance, what Laurie Anderson does visually, um, in some case, you know, with a tenth of the budget of some of these other things, I think, is full of ideas, imagination, and style. And uh, a lot of rock shows uh, are, in a way, just bombarding the senses. So I hope that audiences do become jaded fast with the uh, big spectacular. Um, which is not to say don't don't do visuals, you know, because uh, that's something that interests me a lot. And uh, I enjoyed my work uh, on The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, and, uh, and I'm, I'm thinking of returning to projected images again for live stuff. But uh, unless it has the feeling, uh, it's all pissing in the wind. <laughs> there you go. Peter yeah. Gabriel, always a brilliant visual artist, as we know from his videos, but also in concert. And I vividly remember how stunning his concerts were, oh, yeah. even for songs as simple as Biko. And he's right in that clip that we just heard. People want passion, and Peter Gabriel delivers that live in concert. That's Peter Gabriel on Famous Lost Words. Still to come, perhaps the most underrated and influential collection of musicians from the 70s. We'll freak out and celebrate some good times with Chic next. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward. And I'm Tom Jokic. As always, we're digging up some great interviews from our archives and playing you the best parts. We've already heard from Peter Gabriel. Now let's do a deep dive into disco. From June of 1979, straight off the dance floor, there's Good Times by Chic. They were formed seven years earlier in 1972, uh, essentially by Nile Rodgers and Bernard Edwards. They were originally called the Big Apple Band. Mm -hmm. They became Chic in 76, and there was a jam session at Edwards' apartment in New York that resulted in Le Freak, a song that went to number one and sold, hmm, six million copies. (laughs) <laughs> now, huge disco hits like Good Times followed until the inevitable disco backlash pushed them off the charts for good. This, as you may know, Tom, was the beginning of the sort of powerful production teams of that era. And the pair started working after the uh, opportunities on the charts dried up with people like Sister Sledge, Diana Ross, and Debbie Harry. Yeah. As a solo producer, Nile Rogers, an incredibly influential musician and producer, worked with David Bowie on Let's Dance, Madonna, Robert Palmer, and Duran Duran. And also, Christopher, yeah. he worked with In Excess, didn't he? Right. Yeah, he worked with In Excess, and I think he worked with The Spoons as well. Yeah, Nile Rogers produced The Spoons, yeah. That was the beginning of the era of the great production teams. Think about like Sly and Robbie, who produced yeah. Joe Cocker, Simply Red and Grace Jones, or... Like Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, you know, who worked with Janet Jackson in the Human League. It was it was a great era for production teams. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, Bernard Edwards died in 96 on a Japanese tour. Yeah. Here, Bernard Edwards talks about forming a team with Nile Rodgers. Well, what actually happened, Nile and I got together about two years prior to that. And uh, New York City was the second time that we uh, played in a band together. We had met in the city as just, you know... Uh, The Big Apple Band was actually, a, was it not a backup group? Yeah, it was a backup group for the uh, four singers. How did you get together with Niall and decide to, um, I guess, form a partnership uh, of, of sorts? Because uh, your pr- partnership as far as uh, production and arranging, of course, now is, uh, is known all across the world. But how did that come about? Well, we started out uh, as just musicians. And as time went on, uh, working together for about five years, we... You begin to see that each other could do a lot of the different things. So we started to take advantage of that. And we began to get closer and closer. And one day we just decided to turn it into a business. You know, and we were, at first we weren't that, that serious about it. But as we got into it and saw that we could make money, we became very serious about it. And it just grew as time went on. At first we didn't write together at all. And we had just started writing together about two years ago. The first tune we wrote together was Dance, Dance, Dance. So it's about a two-year-old partnership now. So based on what he's saying there, Christopher, I'm going to date stamp this interview at 1979, which is right in the midst of their greatest success. I just love hearing these interviews from when the artists are at their peak. 
Do you think they have a better perspective or absolutely no perspective at all when they're at their peak? It, more interesting for us, maybe, than it is for them at the time, because they don't know. They don't know that they even need perspective in that moment, right? Looking back on it, <laughs> I think they yeah. would realize, I think they would realize, oh my God, what I was going through right there, you know? Yes, and time does provide humility mm-hmm. as well mm-hmm. as distance. Bernard talks about making music for the people, not for the musicians. The big problem we had as musicians was that Every musician we knew, they were all trying to more or less please the other musician. Uh, By that I mean technically they were trying to play very heavy music, which is basically over the head of the average record buyer or the average listener. So we decided that we had learned how to play, we had nothing to prove anymore, and we simply wanted to get back into enjoying our music and making sure that other people enjoyed it. Uh, We take it very seriously, we don't think that it's a, a joke, but we think that that is what music is for, I think it is to entertain people, make them feel good, set up your mood, you know, it's, it's worth the money you, you pay. It's not, I don't think it should be a heavy message. There, there are other ways of doing that, you know, but uh, I think when you put a record on for, for the uh, half hour or the hour that you get, you should be able to sit back and enjoy yourself. And you know these guys had chops. They knew how oh, to yeah. play and didn't have anything to prove to anyone. However, because Chic were part of the disco era, I think they aren't given enough respect for their talent or even their music. Because those songs, La Freak, Good Times, He's the Greatest Dancer, those are some of the greatest, tightest, and well-played grooves in music history, and their influence Amen. is enormous. But I know a lot of rock guys don't treat them with respect at all. You know, when I talked to Burton Cummings last year about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, you've got to hear that episode. <laughs> Uh-oh. He said... Uh-oh that the Hall of Fame was a disgrace and a joke, and he specifically mentioned Madonna and Chic as being proof that it was a joke. But I so strongly disagree with that. I think you're spot on when you talk about the influence of that band. And it's interesting when you go back through old interviews, as we so often do, Mm -hmm. to hear people like mm, Human League or ABC, a lot of those bands, when you say, well, who do they point to primarily as a major influence? Yeah. It's chic. Craftwork as well, but also chic. Yeah. Speaking of disrespect, here Bernard Edwards reacts to the backlash against disco that had just begun. Well, the thing that, that started out, we were the same way, to be very honest about it. We thought it sucked at first. But it's just like any form of music. I'm sure when rock and roll first came in, other musicians thought it was the craziest thing because it's two or three chord changes. But as we got into it, we decided that we could do more with it. And if we took it seriously, we could really turn it into some respectable music as far as we were concerned because we felt we were good musicians. So when a person says that to us, I know very few bands that can, can reproduce the sound that we, we make on our records. And we actually do it live and we perform, which floors a lot of musicians. So I don't think that they're still walking around saying it sucks. And now every superstar that we all know, it, they have to do disco now. It's the biggest music in the world right now. And I think it's, it's bridged America with Europe and Africa and everything else. And it's crazy. You look at the charts, it's everywhere now. I don't think they can put that down. They, uh, they can't do that. It's, it's too many people now. We, we just finished doing a tour where 35, 45, 65,000 people are coming out for a disco night. And you can't deny that that is now a, a, a definite part of, of the music industry now. We've consistently gone number one down a summer, you know, on and on the Village People. Rod Stewart's doing it. Swings are doing it, Paul McCartney. You can't deny it any longer. They're going to slowly but surely start accepting it and saying that it's good. And, of course, one of the, the, the greatest remembered ballad groups in the world, the Bee Gees from back in the That's late fair. 60s, are now the disco kings. I mean, that... that well, they the started it all with the movie and, and, uh, and the big records because at first, uh, disco records weren't actually selling like that. And uh, with Saturday Night Fever and the Bee Gees soundtrack, it became a very serious part of music, and Casablanca went down the summer, and then we came along, and it's been really, really, uh, I think more or less uh, uh, like snowballing. Everyone is uh, against it, but just like I said, like rock and roll and stuff like that, it all starts that way. There's good, there's bad in disco, but basically I think it's a good form of music. I think it's refreshing. They have their clothes, they have their way of talking, they have, you know, uh, certain things, certain shops, certain places to hang out in. Just like, you know, during the uh, teeny bopper days, and you know, any trend you go through, Frank Sinatra's days, uh, Elvis Presley days, rock and roll, now it's disco, it's going to go on and on. That's a great clip, hearing his defense Mm -hmm. of disco, but it's also sad, too, because we know that the disco backlash effectively killed that music, at least for the time being. Christopher, did you ever see the um, Bee Gees documentary, How Can You Mend a Broken Heart? 
I have not, but I know you're going to tell me about it. And did you love it? I did. I loved it. But there's a there's a really, really sad part near the end of the movie in which the Bee Gees are basically at the top of the world and they're performing a concert in 1979, the same night as the Comiskey Park Disco Sucks Riot, right? Oh, that very, very famous night. So at one point, the movie cuts back and forth between the Disco Sucks Rally at Comiskey Park in Chicago and this euphoric, triumphant Bee Gees concert in which they're playing not only their disco songs, but their vast catalog of great, great songs. And you know what's about to happen to them. So there's this foreboding in the intercutting of the two scenes. And, and, you know, it reminds me a little bit of, here's Bernard Edwards defending and talking about how, how disco is not dead. It's rising, in fact, that it's a legitimate, respected type of music. And we know that... He may be right, but part of the world and a big part of the world thinks he's wrong and it's going to crush the disco movement. You know what I like about this interview? Well, many things, but the fact that he is on top at that moment. Yes. But he also has a lot of perspective about Mm -hmm. why disco is looked upon the way it is and the fact that the musicianship is, um, you know, doesn't have to be defended. It's all out there. Yeah, I I like this. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things, like, isn't it great to hear Bernard Edwards? I know nothing. I know very little about Bernard Edwards other than the history of the band a little bit. But here he is, and he's so great. He just tells it like it is, and it's fantastic. Tom, here he talks about picking up on a trend in the clubs. Well, yeah. What happened? We, after we did Dance, 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 we started going to the discos again, you know, hanging out. And we noticed the trend in, in, in Studio 54 and the other big discos where like models and, uh, you know, uh, jet set more or less, very loose people and inhibited. You know, they were hanging out and they were dancing and they were doing a thing they called the Freak. So at the time, it was like eight months before the Freak came out, we both decided that it, it could quite possibly become as big as the twist. And when we would say that to people, everybody would laugh. They said, there's no way America's not going to go for another dance. Crazy, you're crazy. You know, so we decided, well, we're going to take a chance. We're going to write the tune anyway. And we released it and, of course, it just went wild. And it surprised all of us. Uh, we've been very lucky in Canada. Matter of fact, we just uh, did a, a concert in Vancouver and picked up uh, our Canadian Platinum Records, and it was a very nice concert. It sold out, and it had a good night. And I'm we shocked the people there because they said that the Canadian audience was very laid back, very conservative, and if they didn't applaud too much, don't be insulted because they were just getting into disco. And of course, we came out from the first song to the last. They were standing and screaming and dancing, and you know, it was a great night. Freak Out, that's Chic with Le Freak from 1979, the same year as that interview with the great Bernard Edwards, whose bass playing influenced so many players and so many songs. And his riff on Good Times was sampled in the song Rapper's Delight by the Sugar Hill Gang and was very obviously the basis of Queen's Another One Bites the Dust. Up next on Famous Last Words, a Canadian rock star deals with the news that loud music may have injured him permanently. We'll find out what he did to overcome that terrible prognosis. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic. That's Blue Rodeo on Lost Together, great song from 1992 with lead vocals by Greg Keeler. A couple of weeks ago, I chatted with Greg in two different sessions, once by phone and once by Zoom, which explains the different sound quality. Greg was in great spirits, and rightly so, because he has a wonderful new album out called Share the Love. Here are some highlights from our chat. First of all, how you doing these days? I'm doing doing well, Tom. Let's talk about the new album, Share the Love, which is out now. Greg, I made the mistake of reading the extended press release about this album before I listened to it. <laughs> so I expected it to be very, like a very gloomy collection of very dark songs. And I was pleasantly surprised. Sure, there's that darkness in it, you know, on occasion and, and throughout some of the songs. But I was presently surprised to also hear a very melodic and often very upbeat album. Well, the, the record sort of goes, there are two sort of major themes on the record. One is a very close friend of mine, a mentor, someone who, who was very important in my life. She died. And around the same time, my girlfriend of about four or five years 
she broke up with me. So I was in a pretty dark place. And so I wrote the two sort of sad, broken-hearted songs, Share the Love and Goodbye Baby. And then, so that summer was a long summer. Mm -hmm. And so I had to do some pretty deep self-examination. And at the end of that summer, I met a woman named Kaylee. And as soon as we met, we were just very, very connected. So then there's a group of songs as well about infatuation and seduction. <laughs> wow. Okay. All right. And is Wonder one of those songs? Yes. Wonder is one, is one of those songs that is... That, that song describes the night that I met Kaylee. We were sitting in a bar at the rickshaw listening to the band through the wall. Like, it just describes the whole evening. That's great. And I got to tell you, Greg, I've had that song stuck in my head now for about 48 hours. Let's have a listen to that first single, Here's Wonder by Greg Keeler. And the feathers on your body are a wonder to behold. You're a wonder That's Greg Keeler and Wonder, the first single from his new album called Share the Love, which is out now. You know, I understand that this is a completely different version of the album than you originally had planned. Tell me about that. I live about an hour east of Toronto, and I'm in farm country here. And so I went over to this little town called Gore's Landing, and they have a community center there. And we set up, and we were going to film like a promotional video for the record. Because I was thinking, well, the way to promote songs these days is to have as much visual information that you can put on social media. Mm -hmm. So we decided to record and film every song. And then got home and listened to it, and everybody thought it was better than the record. Oh, wow. And so we sent, we sent it to Steve Kane, and he said, this is way better than the record. So, boy, oh, boy. Yeah. So that's a nice surprise, you know, you sort of love when that happens, when you put in all this work, and then in two days, you come up with something better. Greg, your voice is exactly the same as it was on the very first Blue Rodeo album, in, in my opinion. There's no need to be <clears throat> insulting. <laughs> so that raises the question, did you sound old for your age then, or do you sound young for your age now? <laughs> I don't really know. That's like a, the sound of one hand clapping. You know, being in Blue Rodeo yeah. and touring yeah. as long as we have and as much as we do, you know, Jim Cuddy and I have always enjoyed singing together. We love singing together. Mm -hmm. Singing is a bit of a discipline. I can't mm -hmm. do caffeine or smoke when I'm on the road. And oh. Jim has to give up his delicious wine when he's on the road. Mm -hmm. and, and so, yeah, we got to look after our voices. All right. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about songwriting right now. What song or artist or moment had a profound effect on you when the, you know, the moment that you decided that you wanted to do that? I think the most profound moments musically for me were hearing the Beatles and right. hearing Bob Dylan. Right. And the effect, the dominoes that got kicked over that day led eventually to me wanting to learn how to play guitar and sing. But still to this day, it's the Beatles and Dylan for me. Like, you know, there's so many more, you know, like I love Leonard Cohen. I love Nick Drake. I love Towns Van Zandt. There's all these people that I just love. <laughs> but the, the guys that, that kickstarted it for me are the Beatles and, and Dylan. And, and even to this day, when I sometimes when I sit down to write a song, I'll just go, why do you bother? <laughs> You're never going to touch a Dylan tune. You're never going to do a Beatle tune. You know, you're just, you're just a, an imitator. And, you know, and many people have said that about me as well. <laughs> hey, hey, I guess it is, isn't it me? Blue Rodeo and Hasn't Hit Me Yet from 1994. Greg, when I last spoke to you in 2002, I asked both you and Jim about life on the road, 
And here's what you said about touring 19 years ago. I love it. Yeah, I love being on the bus. Uh, I like the concentration on the music. I like that the band does get so tight, you know. You just, yeah, you get, you get to a certain level of playing. And uh, the collective sort of exceeds its capabilities. Like you sort of know, well, you know, this is, this is about the extent of my musicianship. And then you observe yourself on certain nights playing way beyond your what you're capable of playing you know if i had to sit here and play it right now and uh and so the whole band does that and so you know it's it's a great yardstick and a great measure of of you know what you're doing musically and that it's so disconnected from what you would call your day-to-day life do you feel the same way about touring now well my ears took a turn south well, and, uh, you know, for a long time, my ears have been in trouble. Um, I've had the a heavy tinnitus ring for 30 years. No. And, uh, and then my ears just got more and more sort of injured over the years to the point where I couldn't really play music anymore. And so I thought I, I was going to have to quit playing in a in a band but we sort of figured out a way to do it we put glenn behind the plexiglass and everyone put their amps off stage and i actually stopped playing electric guitar and so that works pretty well but even if if it if the tour is too long or too many days in a row it's really makes my it really bruises my brain and it just affects me in a very negative way it sort of changes the lens that I perceive, perceive the world around me and myself in it. And I get, I get pretty bummed out and depressed. And so after that one last tour with Blue Ray, I forget which one it was. It was a couple back. Yeah, I really thought that it was over for me. Yeah, I'd heard that. Over the years, we've sort of worked it out. And having this time off, the COVID time off, has been a real blessing for my brain and my my songwriting. You're not playing electric guitar, right? I'm I'm strumming my my old Epiphone guitar. Is that an acoustic? It's acoustic, yeah. Yes, okay. Another thing that we talked about is you guys talked about the challenges from early in your career, you know, from these really weird moments that happened to you guys. They, you turned them into blessings because it made you able to look after yourselves. Like when you're early management went bankrupt when your American label really had no idea what what to do. How do you look back on that time now and those lessons that you guys, you know, supposedly learned uh, back then? Well, you know, I don't know if we learned lessons, as, as mm-hmm. you say, and maybe we w- might have said that. Mm-hmm. But we're, Jim and I are resilient and we, we keep on keeping on. The first big one was when Cleve, the original drummer, quit. Mm-hmm. And we were such a tight group, you know, with Bobby Wiseman and the five of us. Mm-hmm. And we traveled all over the world and, and promoted the first two records. And then he said, I, I can't do this anymore. Mm-hmm. Well, that was devastating, you know. And then Bobby Wiseman quits. And that was devastating. Like, you know, what do we do? He was, he was half the show. But you just keep on going. You mm-hmm. know, you just, you, you don't, we didn't have time to reflect. And we just, you know, there, there, there were some pretty dodgy times, I'm sure. You know, there was a period after Bobby Wiseman quit. We probably did about 50 shows without a keyboard player. And, <laughs> you know, the thing about losing things, and even a thing that I've learned a lot this year with COVID is letting go of things, right? So much you got to let go of. And sometimes in letting go and just moving on, you make room for new stuff. Greg, over the years, you guys have had a lot of moments where you just kind of couldn't believe what had happened to your with your career. Like you, you found yourself in places, whether it was in the 1989 Junos backing up the band, right? right? Being part of the band, which was just an amazing performance. Or you had something to do with, with Gordon Lightfoot in Massey Hall. What happened there? Uh, they were going to shut down Massey Hall for renovations. And there was talk about us doing a show with Gordon Lightfoot. 
And my manager phoned me up, said that, you know, they're talking about you guys doing a show with Gordon Lightfoot, a double bill. Because as it turns out, Gord has played Massey Hall more than anybody. Mm-hmm. He's played it like 147 times. <laughs> and we are second in his wake. We are, I think, 37 times. And so <laughs> so Gordon has one of those records that will never be broken. Yes. It's just, it's just impossible in this day and age. And I just thought about uh, the, the room in Lake Louise at the Chateau where I first picked up an acoustic guitar. And it was my roommate's guitar. And he had two songbooks. He had a Gordon Lightfoot book and the Everly Brothers book. And I learned how to play guitar with the finger chart, the chords and strumming those songs. The first time I picked up a guitar, it rattled my DNA so deeply that I knew I was going to be doing this for the rest of my life. That's great. You know, it's funny because we talk about music as an escape, but we often consider it an escape for the listener. But it's an escape also for the artist in two levels. It's an escape because they're going to a different place emotionally or artistically, but they're also literally escaping from their own lives, especially if music turns out to be their career. And there's been many times when I've been very self-indulgent. I'm like rolling my 10th hash joint of the day. And I'm thinking, <laughs> Greg, you're just doing your job. <laughs> well, very good. Well, listen, I'm going to let you uh, go back to, quote unquote, doing your job. But I really want to thank you for joining us. The new album is called Share the Love. It is out now. So thanks very much, Greg. I appreciate your time. Thanks again. Okay, glad we could catch up. That does it for this edition of Famous Lost Words. Our show was created and produced by Tom Jokic, executive producer Sarah Cummings. I'm Christopher Ward. And I'm Tom Jokic. Famous Lost Words is heard in more than 70 countries around the world and on radio stations across Canada. Get caught up on past episodes on the iHeartRadio app, Spotify, Apple Pods, and many other podcast platforms. If you like the show, tell every single person you know. Trust us, they will thank you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.